All right. I need somebody who can read loud. Somebody, uh, somebody look up for me, Colossians chapter 1. And uh, I need somebody to volunteer who, who really have the pipes, all right? So, uh, and if you don't have the pipes, but you really feel led to, le- led to read, I got a microphone right here. Anybody got it? Colossians chapter 1. Who will volunteer for me? Thank you, Brother Rob. Stand up. All right, turn around. You're reading to them, not to me, all right? And I want you to read uh, Colossians chapter 1 and uh, read for us, uh, let's see here, uh, how about uh, verses 26 and 27? Yes, there are. Thank you for the confidence back there, whoever did that. All right. Thank you, bro. I hope what you just heard was Paul was saying that the mystery that has, been he- that has been hidden for ages is now being revealed. And what Paul is saying there is mystery is not the same as mysterious. Mysterious is that we may never understand that. Mystery is something is being unfolded. Now, we're going on a journey for this fall. If you want to go with us, uh, then come on. If you don't... Uh, your loss. But what we're doing is here at Midtown, our, part of our mission statement is creating a movement of gospel transformation. And we've been asking ourselves, well, what does that mean? Like, that sounds so churchy, transformation, you know, gospel transformation. What does that mean? And how do we as a community participate in that transformation? And last week, we began the journey by looking at the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul reminds us of the gospel. And we talked about how we all want transformation or change or, you know, something to happen in my life that can take me to uh, PL, the promised land. You know, some of you have a fitness promised land. You know, some of you have an emotional promised land. Some of you have a relational promised land. Some of you have a mental promised land or a career promised land or a cash promised land. I like that one. How do we get there? And we talked about last week all the obstacles that actually we thought would help us, like going to great churches or reading great books or, you know, maybe if I sit under that teacher, then I'll be able to change or, you know, if I, if I had willpower, that's what I need. I need willpower. Or really, how do I do it? And what keeps getting in the way is me. So how do I rescue myself from me? And the gospel steps into the middle of this paradigm and doesn't save me from sins, but it saves me from sin. And we talked about that last week how Jesus comes in and he is the initiator of gospel transformation. He is the power of gospel transformation. He's the continuance of gospel transformation. And he's the completer of gospel transformation. So we're pouring a foundation. If you weren't here last week, that was the whole sermon. So you didn't need to be here last week, did you? Now you're saying, okay, do this week's sermon that fast. No. Because we're still pouring a foundation Because before we can get on to the things of how do you participate in this, you can't jump ahead of this part. I'll explain in just a minute. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, uh, we're in verse 12. Do you all need to see the board over here? Then you should have sat over there. 
There's a few seats open. I'm sorry. I'm joking. All right, I'm joking. You know, Dave's over here going, dude, somebody new may be here and take you serious. I'm, okay, Jesus loves you. We're trying. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if, it's, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? All throughout this book, we have discovered that there have been questions that have been shot at Paul, and he's been responding to those questions. Now what he's found out is that some of the people in the Corinth church believed there was no resurrection of the dead. So Paul is addressing that question, which is helping us understand the foundation of gospel transformation today. So he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, you all see that? Or do you all just want to trust me? I could change the text and you would never know it. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul is addressing the issue that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been risen and this is a huge deal. I mean, he, it's kind of like he, it almost sounds like he's overreacting. Because he's saying, hey, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been risen. And if Christ has not been risen, then your faith is useless. It's worthless. Any faith that you might have in God, it's just worthless if Christ is still dead. Then he goes on to say that we are liars. As apostles, he says, we're big, big liars. Then he says, your faith is futile, meaning not only is it worthless, but it's also powerless. Your faith has no power. Now, it'd be really interesting for you to maybe spend some time going back and saying, well, what's the opposite then of those things? That if Christ has been risen, then my faith is worth much. My, uh, that Paul is not a liar, that my faith is powerful. Anyone who said, said that if Christ has not been risen, then you're still in your sins. He even said all those who have died are lost. And then I love the last one. He says, we are to be pitied among everybody. In fact, he's saying that what we're doing here this morning, what you're a part of right now, is pitiful. It's the most pitiful thing you could choose to do on a Sunday morning if Christ has not been risen. So what's the big deal with the resurrection? I mean, let's think about this for a minute because, you know, I was thinking about this this week, and, you know, I don't know anybody that wears around their neck an open tomb. Like, what would that look like to have that on a chain necklace? You know, like, like a cave with a rock rolled over or something. You know, we all wear crosses. Like, the cross, man, that's, that's where the action happened, right? I mean, the resurrection, it's cool that Jesus is kind of alive because then, you know... You know, we, we have a constant companion. We have a co-pilot, you know, that kind of gets us through life. It's, it's cool. You did your work on the cross, and then as a bonus, you got to come back to life, you know? All right, that's cool. You know, you did a good thing. You deserve to live now. 
But let's think about this for a minute because first we have to say at the cross, a lot of good stuff happened. And we need to understand the cross that if, if I am under the cross, ooh, wow, come back here. If I'm under the cross, some really amazing things happen. In Hebrews chapter, I think it's chapter 9, here, if I'm under the cross, a couple of things could happen. Shoot me up a verse there, Warren. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says that under the cross, what happened to the, at the cross is that all my sins are gone, that he took all my sins away, that he who knew no sin became sin, he became my sin, meaning every sin that I've ever committed, every sin that I'm ever going to commit, got bundled up and it got dumped on Jesus. In fact, Jesus took all the sins of the church onto him, in fact, becoming the curse that has killed us, becoming the most sinful man who ever lived. Because he carried all our sins on him and bore the price for all of them so that my sins are gone. That's good, right? Second thing I know is in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that the cross also brought me peace with God. It's a big deal that there is no more enmity between me and God. We have peace now. We're not at war. I'm not the enemy of God anymore because of the work on the cross. The curse has been removed. The sins are gone. The stains are gone. So now I have no enmity. I'm at peace with God. The third thing I know that is true is in Romans 5, verse 9. You can see that up there, that now there's no wrath. God has no wrath for me. Meaning never again as a child of God, if I am in the cross, if I have been saved by the cross, God has no more wrath for me. He will never deal with me in anger ever again. I will never have to pay the price for my sins because Jesus paid for them all. Never again. That all God has for me now is not wrath, but love. It's been exchanged for love. That's a great one to explore. Because some of you feel like God's out to get you. Some of you feel like that if you do something wrong, like right before you take a test, God's going to make you stumble and you're going to really screw up in the test. Because God's just waiting like a cop to get you as soon as you go over the speed limit. Well, this scripture says, no, that's not true at all. Now, our Father loves us, and he grows us up, and he disciplines us, but never again will he ever deal with me in wrath again. That happened at the cross. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is now no condemnation for me. What happened at the cross is God has no more curses for me, no more condemnation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and this is, this is a biggie. And my pen's going out. Sorry. We've been made holy. I'm just going to let you stew in that one for a minute. Really? If I'm in Christ, I am holy because of the work of the cross. But you know, here's the amazing thing that Paul is, is saying to us. If we stop here, if we stop at the cross, we get stuck. We get stuck as believers. Because If we stop at just the amazing gifts that God has given us by setting us free from sin, giving us peace, no more wrath, no more condemnation, and we've been made holy, if we stop there, then then we get stuck as Christians and as believers. It's kind of like, have you ever been to one of those Christmas gag parties where everybody, you know, the white elephant or what else do you call it? Secret Santa, 
Whatever they said. All right. Imagine going to those parties and everybody knows how much do you spend on a gag gift for one of those? Couple of bucks. If you're really creative, you just empty, you know, your trash in a box, you know. Ah, banana peels. You know. So you open one up and you and you look and and it's a brand new iPad. What? Are you kidding me? I mean, would that be an awkward moment for you? For some of you, no. No, no, no. I'm gonna go to that party. But for some of you, you'd be you'd like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. This gift is too much. I, you, you would, I, I don't know if I can take this gift. And if I do take this gift, I owe you something. Like, can I mow your grass? Or, you know, do you need your house painted? Or what, you know, because I mean, we would feel bad about taking such a huge gift. And so when we, when we stop here, it's really easy for us to, for as Christians to feel this sense of indebtedness to God. God, you've done all this stuff for me. Now I owe you something, you know? And so we hear things like, you know, Jesus' work on the cross was his gift to me. How I live my life is my gift to him. Did you get that? That God is watching me, and so how I live my life, because he's given me such a huge gift. I mean, the least I can do is live. You know, I could quit cussing. I mean, right? I mean, it's the least I could do. I mean, he went to the cross and bled and took all my sins. Like, he became the most sinful man in the world. He dealt with the wrath of God on my behalf. The least I could do is stop saying, you fill in the blank. And so we dedicate ourselves to a religious life. We dedicate ourselves to doing the kind of stuff that we think would make Jesus happy because he did such a good thing for us. So we start going to church and we start praying, and we start reading the Bible, we go on retreats, you know, we, we go to these seminars where we learn a lot of information about the Bible, and, you know, and it's, it kind of gets in that place to where, you know, it, it's good, but, you know, it's like it gets harder and harder to get out of bed on Sunday morning, and then I start moving into this vague little place of, I really never pray enough, I never really read the Bible enough. I really, I'm not involved at church. I know, I know I should be more, I know I should be in a small group. I know, I, I know, you know, I, I don't know when the last time was I opened my Bible. And so what starts to creep in because we feel this great indebtedness to God because he's done such an amazing thing for us is guilt becomes this constant companion in my religious life. Can you relate to that? And what's funny about guilt and this is Satan's little trick. I, I, I don't love what I'm about to say. I love that we know that this is a little trick. He loves to confuse guilt and shame. Because guilt moves from I really should and I ought. And guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I've, I am something wrong. And so we start subtly starting to believe that somehow or another I'm a second-class Christian, that my Christianity doesn't really work for me. Oh, that guy over there, he's such a strong believer. Like he's got something you don't have. And he does. He's got such willpower. He's got all this stuff that we talked about last week that doesn't work, but he somehow has been able to harness all... That would have been so cool if it just worked, wouldn't it? He was able to go back here with the help of what Jesus did, and he made all this work. 
Guess what? That's not what we're talking about today. See, and I want to talk about this guilt thing just a little bit longer because the church, traditionally, we are so good at using guilt. I, <laughs> we, we really are. We, we love it because we know that in you, not only is there this sense of I should and I ought, we, we also know that there's something inside of you that even doesn't want to do it. That it's kind of like the wet paint sign that says don't touch. We know there's something in you that goes, oh, I want to touch it so bad. You know, maybe they put that sign on yesterday. Let's just touch it and find out, you know. And there's your fingerprint. And you go, well, my fingerprint's there. I might as well write my name. No, I'll write your name instead, you know. There's that part of us. Not only do I find myself drawn to the very things that God doesn't want me drawn to, but I find myself not doing the very things that I decided I want to do. And the church knows that. And it uses guilt because it knows that guilt is a powerful force for change. And it'll use guilt in things like this. You ought to share your faith more often. You really ought to. You ought to share your faith so that other people can come to the cross and be saved. Because the last thing you want to do is stand before the throne of God and have all your friends in hell looking at you going, Why didn't you tell us? Don't you think? You lived next to me for 20 years and you never said you followed Jesus. That just feels so horrible. That would just, if we did it right, that would just so motivate you to run home and throw tracks at your neighbor. You know? Jesus! How about this one? That movie may not be a bad movie. But would you feel comfortable sitting in that movie if Jesus came back in the middle of it? No, I guess not. I mean, the Godfather, I mean, you know, in the scene where, you know, that would be awkward. Or, you know, we all know that in the Bible, drinking's not a sin. But if you were really enjoying that vintage wine, would that feel weird if Jesus popped in right next to you at that moment? guess it would. And sometimes the church uses guilt to manipulate us to try to get us to do something, often for the agenda of the church. We get stuck at the cross. And here's something that happens. And stay with me. We start to believe that Jesus came to save people from hell. We start to believe that the number one mission of Jesus is to get you into heaven. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's keep reading. But Jesus, but (laughs) I cannot read. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is us. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will die be made alive. What does that mean? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, I came that you may have a ticket to heaven. Nope. I came so that you would never go to hell. Nope. I came that you may have life and life 
to the full. What Jesus came to do was to call dead people to life. What he came to do was to take the death of us and to make us alive, living. And that's why Dave's going to talk about this next week. Only the living inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of being alive is to inherit heaven. You know, it's kind of like this. Uh, Imagine for a moment that this was a mason jar that we're going to put some kind of fruit in. The first thing that we would do before we would do anything with any kind of fruit is that we would go through a process of sterilizing this glass or this mason jar. We wouldn't want any bacteria in there that's going to poison the fruit that I'm going to put in there, right? So I go to all great lengths like my grandmother did. You know, she had all this stuff in her cabinets from years and years back. It's beautiful. But imagine just for a moment that we sterilized this and we said, end of process. <laughs> that glass is clean. It has been forgiven. I'm at peace with that glass. I got no more wrath with this glass. Let me tell you, there's now no condemnation. You are holy. There is no charge against you. You are clean. Woo! All right? And I go home to visit my grandmother, and she's got shelf after shelf after shelf. She had my grandfather build new shelves, and they're just all over the house. And on all those shelves is sterilized, clean glasses. And I go, Grandmother, what's that about? She goes, you would not believe this, but I am so into sterilizing things. Great, Grandma. Like, that's awesome. Have you seen a doctor? You know, because everywhere she's sterilizing stuff, making it clean, making it clean, making it clean, sticking it up on a glass, up on the shelf. What does that mean? Jesus didn't come just to clean us up. That's what he did at the cross. At the resurrection, something happened. (laughs) He decided to fill the cup. He sterilized it to fill it up. He began to fill up the glass. My life that's been made clean with life. And not just any life, his life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, if you don't believe me, listen to what he says. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. We were buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And what is that new life? Hang on, because this is where it's going to get crazy. All right? Stay with me. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 14. Now, this, uh, this little passage here is, is kind of long, but it's, it's worth it, all right? John chapter 14, because stay still. Philip has asked Jesus the question, Jesus, you're always talking about this father guy, all right? Can you show us the father? I mean, we never see him. He says, uh, don't you know me, Philip? This is verse 9, chapter 14 of John. After I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father, I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus is letting the disciples in on a spiritual reality. Listen to the unfolding of this mystery. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. I can do nothing apart from the Father. He always is working through me. There are other places where Jesus even said, I don't say anything apart from what the Father tells me to say. There's this dependency relationship that Jesus is communicating to us and to his disciples on the Father. They're linked. He even says, I do nothing, nothing apart from the Father. Did you get that? Nothing? You got that? You tracking with me? Yes? Okay. I don't know. Are you? Because let's keep reading. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. He says we're going to do greater things than Jesus did. That sounds pretty exciting. That sounds a little over-promotion, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Well, if you have never read that and if you've never wrestled with what that means, you should go do that. We don't have time to talk about it today. Verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now Jesus is starting talking about the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Because, but you know him, for he lives in he lives with you and will be in you. Hey, wait a minute. He just talked about me and the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is in us. Are you seeing the connections now? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. See, to be fully alive, which is what Christ came to do, to bring about gospel transformation, is to pour his life into into us. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. (laughs) The reason this is so fundamental is because if I don't know that that's a reality as a believer, that Christ is now living his life in me, then everything is going to confuse me. It's kind of like the show, you know, I didn't know I was pregnant. It's true, isn't it? Have you ever seen that show? We've talked about it before. I literally have never seen that show. I've just seen it on the, you know, the scroll of my, you know, TV. And every time I see it, I just laugh. I'm like, how is that possible? How do you not know that you're not praying? But you know what? It's true about us as believers. We believe that I've been forgiven, and now Jesus is wondering what I'm going to do with it. 
But at the resurrection now, we know that Christ poured his life inside of me. And Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is now living his life in me. I am pregnant with the power of Christ that is working out his purposes in my life. And if I don't know that, man, everything's going to seem horrible. Even deep convictions is going to go, I'm going to go, what's wrong with me? What's wrong? You're pregnant. That's what's wrong with you. God is working inside of you. Man, I just, I, you know, even when the Lord convicts me of sin, we feel horrible. We go, what's that? I used to love that stuff. That's right. That was before Christ was in you. When I became a Christian, and I, I was such a good sinner. If we had time, I could tell you all about the great sins that I committed and did commit. When I became a believer, I went to my pastor and said, man, I'm worse now than I've ever been in my life. And he says, no, Christ is in you now. And now you're beginning to see how much the Lord is starting to change you. <laughs> What's he doing in there? Like, hey, <laughs> okay, you're in there. What are you doing? The old is gone, the new has come. Okay, the new is there. What, what's happening? And here's what's amazing. Is he's kind of in there picking a fight. He really is. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever seen the, uh, well, I'm not going to say it. You know what I'm talking about. You, okay, William Wallace, you know. He's... <laughs> He's kind of going to pick a fight. And what is he picking a fight with? He's picking a fight with, hey, it's that dead man that, uh, that I've caused to life now, you may be done with death, but death isn't always done with you. And death kind of sticks around, and Jesus is kind of picking a fight. Like, hey, I don't, want to, I don't want you to live in death. I want you to live in life. You don't have to live in death anymore. And so what does he pick a fight with? He is starting a fight or starting a fire. He's doing things like pouring out God's love in my heart. He's awakening to the reality of the new heart that he's placed inside of me. He's stirring me to the joy that's already been given to me as a believer. I don't have to go find joy. I don't need more joy. I've been given all the joy that I could possibly have. I just need to open my eyes to that joy. He's screaming new hope into my ears every day because now there's more than me that's going on because now Christ in me, the hope of glory, is actually working in my life and he's whispering my new name and he's daring me to believe it. You know, in our house, when you walk into the back of our house, you walk into a living room and we have these rows of lights that uh, kind of line the, the walkway into the living room and uh, they went out like a year ago, you know, the flip. I changed the light bulbs, and I'm like, they don't work, you know. So I went to the uh, what do you call the thing, the 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 yeah, all that, the circuit box. All right, <laughs> I spent three years studying electricity. <laughs> uh, no, and so you know, I'm flipping switches, and you know, I'm even flipping switches that have nothing to do with those lights because I'm thinking somehow or another they got crosswired, and you know, turn off, you know, you know, all the alarm clocks in the house. That really ticks everybody off. All right, I have to reset everything, and nothing worked. And so I'm like, uh, Renee, you need to call Alvin. He's our electrician. I don't know, something's wrong. I think it's probably you know some defibrillator or something. And she, he goes, okay, I'll call Alvin. So she forgets. I forget. We go for a year. I'm not kidding you. A year without those lights working. I like those lights. A year. That's 12 months. 
all right? We finally get Alvin over there, and he's like, you know, he's got all his tools and his belt and his Jamaican accent. He's just so cool. And he comes in, and he's just got, like, dials and meters and all kinds of cool things. Like, I'm like, yeah, dude, I need that. If I had that, like, no, no, no. All right? And he goes in, and, and he's in there, and he's looking at the, you know, the, the board, you know. And he comes back in, and <clears throat> he stands there, and I says, so, Alvin, have you figured it out? Because he's brilliant. He goes, yeah, and he walked three feet, and he went, and the lights came on. I'm like, what would you do? He goes, you have two switches for your lights. <laughs> he says, when you flip that switch on, it doesn't work because you got to flip that switch on. Somebody was at our house and flipped the switch we did not know existed, all right? I say, I'm not kidding you. I'm like, Ugh. So when the lights went out in the garage a week later, I'm like, Renee, we're not calling Alvin. Flip every switch you can find. Hey, what, I, what I'm saying to you is that if all of history is the story of Christ coming to do what, what we're talking about this morning, that he is calling dead men to alive men, in chapter 15, later, it talks about he makes us spiritual people, and spiritual people inherit the kingdom of God. We have been made people, and yet, what keeps us from flipping on that switch to where we realize that Christ is working within me? That is, Christ was in the Father, and the Father is in Christ. Christ came to live in me. That's crazy. So the Scripture is more about being set free the scriptures are now about how do I live alive? Because I've been made alive. Be what you are, but we leave the switch off. And we keep saying to God, thank you for the gift, I'll go do it. And God is saying, no. <clears throat> so how do we do it? How do we flip the switch? Let me just give you three quick things and then I'm going to be through. It's a switch of love, dependency, and obedience. There's a reason I'm not talking a lot about them this morning because we're going to be talking a lot about these things over the next few months. But the first is that we love this Jesus that has come and filled us up. We love him. And you know what? That may seem impossible to you, but here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel says we love because he first loved us. That's how we love. If you're a bad lover, it's because you're bad at letting Jesus love you. The first step of loving is letting the Lord love me. It's like the great judo of the Bible. You know, hi-ya. That he fills me up so that I can love. Matter of fact, here, here is the thing that he said to the woman at the well. What did he say? He said, let me fill you up. And when I fill you up, you will be living water. You see what he did? He said, I'm not just filling you to the edge. What I'm doing is I am flowing out of you in a way that is making a mess. That my love will flow out of you in such a way that, I mean, I, I was trying to figure out last night how to bring a garden hose in here. Because this is a sad illustration of the reality that God's love, he says, I dare you to understand how high, how wide, how deep, how long the love of God is. Because if you can begin to grasp that, it'll fill you up with the very fullness of God. And out of the overflowing of that heart, I love, I wish I had a water hose just to spray all of you down and tick you off so that you go home, I don't know why, get me wet, church. 
What is he doing that for? Guys, this is the unfolding mystery. This is what the world has been waiting for, and it's been given to you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But yet we live like it's not true. We live like it's not true. Like the second thing is dependency. You know what dependency is? I quit. I give up. People come into the office, you know, because they, they want to talk to a pastor for counseling, and that's cool because I like to give counsel, you know. And uh, here's what I hear oftentimes in marriages. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. This marriage thing, man. I quit. I jump out of my chair and say, give me a high five. All right. You can't do it anymore. I have been waiting for years for you to get to that point. I am so happy that you're right there that you can't do it anymore. Because you could never do it in the first place. It's only when you get to the end of yourself that you begin to understand the vast resources that God has made available to you through Christ and you, all the glory. So maybe you'll stop doing it now and get out of the way. In other words, shut up. Good. Now we all know you can't do it. Big revelation to everybody else. Not really, all right? See, that's what dependency is. I've come to the end of myself. I've come to the end of it. I can't do it. Is this stuff real? Like, is, Because if it's not real, we're to be pitied by everybody. But if it is real, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Because the third thing is obedience. And let me tell you, a lot of you have been beat up by that word, I know. We're going to talk a lot about that over the next couple months. You know what obedience is? It's being so in love. It's being so dependent upon a power that has me in its hands and says you've not surrendered to an enemy. You've just surrendered to the lover of your soul. And obedience is just say, simply saying, wherever you go, I'm going. You, man, what, I, I am with you. Take me. Lead me. But if you do that, you better be careful. At the end of uh, this passage in verse 30 and 32, Paul says, because of the reality of what I've just said on this board, the reality of that, he, he said, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. I know, isn't that crazy? Like, can you imagine Paul wrestling with wild animals? He said, I die every day. Now here's my conclusion to this. Some of you are here this morning, and you're like, you know what? I'd rather wrestle wild beast than wrestle with the fact that I'm single, and I'm scared, and I don't want to be single anymore, or I'm wondering, am I going to be single the rest of my life, and I don't know how to manage singleness? Some of you are here, and you're struggling with sexual stuff in your life that you feel like is so out of control that it's just bigger than anything you've ever experienced before. I know. I know. Some of you here, you're in marriages that you, that if we knew what was going on in your marriage, it would terrify you because you don't even know if your marriage is going to hang on. You're not sure you want to hang on. I know. Some of you got financial problems here that you believe would blow everybody's mind. Some of you are struggling with depression and sickness, and you have no idea why God has allowed this stuff to happen in your life. Those are pretty big beasts. And let me tell you how we wrestle with them this morning, okay? <laughs> if this is true, 
I want to challenge you to do something. The thing that you would give anything to be gone from your life right now, I want you to thank God for it. I want you to thank him. Why? Even your doubts, thank him. Because how do you think he pours himself into our lives? How do you think he reveals that? It's often the place I need him the most, where I'm like, this is bigger than me. I give up. I can't do it anymore. But you can. See, I can't do marriage. Christ can. I can't do singleness. Christ can. I can't struggle with sexual sin. Christ can. I can't struggle with depression or sickness or the mortality of my own life. Christ can. I can't struggle with my fears, my worries, my my anxieties. Christ can. I can't struggle. I don't know what to do with my roommate who's trying to kick me out or the people that I don't like or the people that are talking about me or the people that I've been talking about and I've been caught in it. I don't know what to do. Christ does. And here's the cool thing. When I thank him, I can look at him and say, what are you going to do about this? Hmm. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the gospel transformation of your gospel, as we think about this resurrection, this newness of life, that now your life being poured into us, we pray, Father, we pray that you give us courage. Because if we dare to believe that This great unfolding mystery since the beginning of time is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, you're going to call us into some crazy stuff. Lead us in that, I pray. Give us courage to be loved and to love. Give us courage to be dependent, to surrender. And give us courage to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.